If you would like more information about Jubilee Church, please visit our website at jubileestl.org. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So we are going to have the sex talk. We're going to have the sex talk that you probably didn't hear from your parents, and you definitely didn't get this uh, from culture, uh, because most of us treat sex as though we're uninformed about what sex is. I don't know if you noticed when Paul, um, he kind of had the same issue with the Corinthians, because he would say, he said it three different times, right? He said, if you go back to that passage, at three different times, he said, did you not know? Did you not know? Do you not know? Because obviously they were treating sex as if they didn't know what sex really is. Um, and the Corinthians came under this false reality that I think a lot of people in our culture do, is that they thought of this. They thought sex was just a physical thing. And Paul's saying there's a deeper meaning to sex uh, that he, his readers were uninformed of. So he says, I want you to know. That's what he said. You don't know, you don't know. 
And so he, I want to uh, bring you into that information as well, that sex is not just uh, physical. Many people in our culture will think uh, sex is just a physical act. If no one gets hurt, if it's consensual, if no disease is transmitted, if there's no unwanted pregnancies, and hey, what's the harm? It's just a physical act. It's like tennis. It's like touch football or maybe more like tackle football where you stay on the ground as long as you can. But it's, it's just a physical act. If nobody gets hurt, it's, it's, everything's okay. It's just a physical act. We can move on. So what's the problem? But I think intuitively, and certainly if we think deeply about it, uh, we know that it's not just a physical act. There's something more going on than just that. And so I want to just maybe present a few questions for you, for us to reflect upon if, if you are one of those who thinks that sex is just a physical act. And I'm not trying to be glib or trite uh, because these are serious questions. Like, like this, like, why is it when a child is sexually abused and when they're adult, when they finally connect the dots, why is it so difficult for them to shake that abuse off? Why is rape so devastating beyond simply just being beat up? Why will women be much more likely to report physical abuse, being mugged, being beat up, but won't be as likely to report rape. I saw a Dateline episode a few years ago about this reporter in Somalia that was captured. Um, and she was tortured mentally and physically for over a year. She was made to, to stand on this very small mat and wasn't allowed to, to move from that mat. She was hung by her arms and her feet on very, for a very long time. It was very painful, made it very difficult to breathe. Um, she was punched and kicked so much. She, lost, she had her, all of her teeth kicked out. Um, and for the first two years after being rescued, that's all she talked about. All she could talk about was the physical beating, but she would not and did not talk about the rape. Even though the beatings she took were far more severe physically, here's my question. If sex is just a physical act, why was the rape her darkest horror? Why is it that men who have the deepest sexual issues and addiction almost always have absent or uninvolved fathers. The smart people will tell you it's a predictable pattern. There's something deeper going on with sex that goes beyond the physical. If sex was just a physical act, why is it that our deepest, darkest secrets are always sexual? When someone comes up to you and says, hey, you want to tell you something that no one's, I've been never told anyone. Nobody ever says, I bumped into a car and I didn't leave a note. <laughs> Nobody says that. They say, well, I was on spring break. Um, you know, I met him at work, you know, I thought it would be more than this. I thought she was the one. I thought he was the one. And we try to tell ourselves it's just a physical act, even though in our gut, we know that's not true. And when you treat it just like a physical act, you'll do one of two things. And, and all throughout history, we've done this. You'll either, you'll either want to repress the desire because it's a desire that's animalistic and you don't, or you'll glorify the, and that's what was happening in this passage. He talks to people who are just um, into uh, sexual immorality and then people who were saying things like, it's good for, for men and women not to have sexual relations. Um, and this is all throughout history. You can see this in, I mean, it's, you go back as far as Plato um, in the BC era. Um, um, Plato, he, he said that uh, sexual desire should be repressed. And he came up with what we know now as uh, Platonism or a platonic relationship. A platonic relationship is a friendship that has no possibility of romance. You're in the friend zone. You're stuck there. It's a platonic relationship. It's from Plato. He said it. Blame him. 
Some of the early church fathers picked up on this. Guys, great theologians like Origen, we got a lot of theological. He, w- he wanted to distance himself so much from sexual desire, he castrated himself, and he went around saying, sex is bad. And uh, <laughs> now, I might suggest other alternative anyway, but so... But then, but then if you kind of fast forward over a lot of centuries into now into like what's called modernism or romanticism. So before, in, in, some, in some cultures would say that the desire is, is, is the villain, that individual desire is the villain and we need this to be repressed. But in, in this modern era, in romanticism, we would say the villain is not our desires, the villain is society. Society is trying to, re, to repress self-expression and what we really need to do is to cast off all restraints to allow the individual to take center stage and whatever their desires are should be expressed. And this was happening then and it's happening now. And I just want you to know the Bible has a much better, deeper meaning and purpose that explains what sex is. It's way more nuanced and way more beautiful, way more synergistic for how you and I are wired. And that's what Paul's pointing to. It's like, it's way beyond physical. It's something deeper is going on. And I'm going to break this down under three headings for you. Three S's for sex. Sex is sacred. Sex is service. Sex is symbolic. So sex is sacred. Now, when you hear that word sacred, I know we always think religious. And, and, and there's a reason for that. Because but it, what sacred means, sacred just means something that is set apart. You know, that's what holy means. It means set apart. It has a purpose. It's to be revered. Sex is sacred. It's be revered. 1 Corinthians 6.13, in the second part of that, Paul says this, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. You are meant for the Lord. You are set apart for the Lord and the Lord for the body. You see, your, your human body is, is way more than some biological machine. It like, it's, a house, uh, it's a house for the Holy Spirit. Uh, inside of you is a soul. You, you have something in called you called a soul. In verse 19, Paul even says that if you're a believer, that you, have, you are the literal a temple of the Holy Spirit. You're much more than a physical being. You are a spiritual being. And when you join together physically in sex... There is a, not just an emotional connection, there is a spiritual connection. Verse six, uh, chapter six, verse 15, God help me. Um, He says, do you not know that he is joined to a prostitute, taking like the lowest form here, is one with her? For as is written, two shall become one flesh. Now, let me tell you how the Corinthians would have taken this. They would have taken it just like you. They're like, because they would have heard that word join, which means clings to, unites with. And so when they would have heard, well, whoever joins with a prostitute uh, becomes one, they'd say, nobody's joining anything here. We're just having sex. No one's joining anything. Paul, you're, you're talking like being bonded together, like glue. That's what the word means. It means something permanent, permanent something intertwined, like scrambled eggs, can't be separated. Because they thought that having sex with someone was just a physical act. So Paul comes in and says, there's something deeper going on. He's not just saying, hey, there's a deeper rung of hell for those who have sexual immorality. He's not trying to cast judgment, but he's asking some questions. Do you not know what's going on here when you have sex? There's an emotional thing happening. There's a spiritual thing. Has no one told you this? Paul says, for it is written, two shall become one. 
that a one that should not be unwound. When two people come together like this, it's a one that should not be unwound. Your, uh, excuse me, sex is as connected to your soul as anything imaginable. It is, it is profoundly more than physical. It is very, very spiritual. The Hebrew word for sex, dod, has with it the idea of the mingling of souls, two becoming one. It's not just physical. And herein lies the mystery and why it is so, so important for sex to stay within the boundaries of marriage. Not so like to, to stifle enjoyment, but to increase enjoyment and to keep it from damaging you because it's very, very powerful. The Bible is very pro-sex. It's very pro-sexual creativity. It's very pro-sexual freedom. And if we had the time, I could take you to the places in the Bible that would make you blush. They would definitely make me blush in saying them. Um, like when, I mean, just think about how the Bible begins. In Genesis 2, it begins with a naked man serenading a naked woman. And that's just the beginning. You move on into what's known as the wisdom literature in the Proverbs. Uh, chapter 5, Solomon says that a husband needs to ravish his wife's breast and should be intoxicated by her love always. Now, for some of you, you're like, that's my new memory verse. And, and if that is... <laughs> I just, want you, I just want you to go ahead and underline the word wife. Go ahead and underline that word wife. That's the key word. So the Bible is no way trying to downplay sexual enjoyment. It's not, it's not even minimizing it to procreation, but it celebrates it as a gift from God to be enjoyed. It just puts one restriction, or I put this way, they're like, you know, it's instructions that come, you know, like the instruction manual. This is how it's supposed to be used. Treat with care, very fragile, very explosive. One boundary, it's to happen in the context of a covenant relationship called marriage. Now, to understand why this is so important, uh, you really kind of have to understand what a covenant relationship is. A covenant relationship is an agreement between two people to love each other regardless of circumstances, even regardless of the performance of the other person in the covenant. This is not the kind of romantic relationships we enter today. Most people enter in what looks more like a consumer relationship, not a covenant relationship. In a co consumer relationship, in the traditional sense of the word, you relate to a vendor and you have a relationship with this vendor as, as long as they're giving you a quality product at a decent price. There's no question that you have a relationship, but you're always looking for an upgrade, even though you may have history with this vendor. So what you say to your vendor is, we have a relationship, but you better keep adjusting to me because if you don't meet my needs, I'm out of here because my needs are more important than the relationship. So if I can get my needs met better somewhere else, and especially at a cheaper price, I'm gone. A covenant relationship is exactly the opposite. In a consumer relationship, you adjust to me. In a covenant relationship, I adjust to you. Whether you're sick, whether you're poor, whether you're in a wheelchair, whether you can't keep a job, I adjust to you. My relationship to you is not dependent upon your performance. My relationship to you is dependent upon a promise. In a consumer relationship, my needs are more important than the relationship. In a covenant relationship, the relationship is more important than my needs. 
And it's only in a covenant relationship that your heart finds that zone of safety that it's longing for. This is what we all have in common, regardless of race, where you come from in the world, what your religion is. It doesn't matter. We all want this. We all want to be completely known and completely loved. We want to stand completely vulnerable in front of someone else and have them love us despite what they see. Now, that's something that ultimately gets fulfilled in who God, God sees all. There is no secrets. You may be trying to keep, hide things from God, but there are no secrets. He sees it all and he loves us. But we all want to be vulnerable. We all want to be naked and be completely loved. In a consumer relationship, you're always marketing. You're always selling yourself. You've got to perform. You've got to meet the other person's needs or they're out. In a covenant relationship, you can finally be yourself. A consumer relationship is fueled by performance regardless of the promise. A covenant relationship is fueled by a promise regardless of the performance. What does this have to do with sex? Everything. Because sex is a covenantal good, not a consumer good. Sex is meant to be this powerful, deepening experience in the relationship that goes well, well, well beyond the physical. So inside of this kind of covenant relationship, it becomes a vehicle for engaging the whole person in an act of self-donation to the other person. When I, in my marriage, make myself physically naked and vulnerable, it's a sign that's what I've done with my whole life. That's why sex outside of marriage isn't just morally wrong, but it lacks integrity. It's hypocritical. Because you're asking someone to do something with their body that you're not willing to do with your whole life. So you're saying, let's be physical, let's be physically vulnerable, let's do physical disclosure, but let's not do whole life disclosure. disclosure. So when you're in a marriage, though, when you, in, when you have sex inside of a marriage, it is a covenant renewal ceremony. I mean, when you think about it, actually, having sex is a lot like taking communion, which I know is an odd thing to say. I mean, you're thinking, like, what in the world is in that juice? Um, <laughs> Come on, honey, let's get out of here. Um, so in commun- here's what communion is. Communion is, is an opportunity to remember. What are you remembering? You're remembering this covenant relationship that you have with Jesus that's not based upon your performance, but it's based upon his initiative to die for your sins, that his body was broken and his blood was spilt on your behalf. And every time you take the bread and every time you take the cup, you are remembering, you're reenacting what happened. And it's not by your performance, but it's by this act of Jesus. And you're renewing, it's like renewing your vows. It's like renewing how you came into this relationship in the first place, which is why we want to do it often. And sex is the same way. It's, just, it's, just, it's, it's a renewal of the vow that I am doing whole life disclosure with you. That's why sex inside of a marriage, or excuse me, it's why sex outside of a marriage is in no way the same thing as sex inside of a marriage. They are completely two different things. If it's just a physical act, then yeah, maybe they're the same thing, but it's beyond that. It's well beyond that. It's way beyond that. 
And, and it's not just the church saying things like this and the Bible saying things like this, but people are, trying to, are starting to figure some things out. In April 2012, in a New York Times article, there's an article is titled The Downside of Cohabitation. And that one of the interviewees named Jennifer, she made this statement about her experience. She said, I felt like I was on a multi-year, never-ending audition to be his wife. Because that's what sex is outside of a marriage. Sex is nothing more than marketing. It's, it's presenting yourself to another person to keep the other person happy. But it's not giving, it's not trusting, and it's not even anywhere close to what it, the real thing is. And if you, I know young people say some really bizarre things like, you know, like, why well, don't, you know, I need the practice, like, I need to find, I need to experience this, I need the practice, I need to, like, I don't want to look stupid when I meet my spouse. Let me give you some advice after 18 years of marriage. Look very stupid. Like, even if you have to fake it, like, just, Act like you don't know what you're doing. Looking stupid will help you. Nobody will say to you on that, man, I'm so glad you practice. Like, this is, I just want to just, I just want to like give you a gold medal for all. Nobody says that. Skill does not fuel intimacy and romance. Exclusivity does. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 18, to Flee from sexual immorality. If you knew what sex was, if you knew that it was not just a physical act, like if you understood what was going on, you wouldn't just like take one little step to the right. You would flee from sexual immorality. Because every other sin a person commits outside the body, but sexual, the, the sexual immoral person sins against his own body. Let me break this down for you. So if, if, if you're not looking, I like take your wallet, for example. I would never do that, but just... If, 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 if I took your, I win and you lose. If I commit if sexual immorality, it's like taking a razor to my own soul. And if you don't believe that, it's because you don't know what sex is. I recently came a, a book called Hooked, which is not a Christian book. It's written by two neurologists. And they did a study on the effects on the brain of having multiple sexual partners. And, the, and this is what they said. The individual who goes from sex, sex partner to sex partner is causing his or, own, his or her brain to mold in such a way that eventually accepts that sexual pattern as normal. That's the way your brain works. The pattern of changing sex partners, therefore, seems to damage their ability to bond in a committed relationship. The kind of attachment damage that occurs after repeated sexual encounters is, in many respects, more pernicious than pregnancy or STDs because it typically goes unperceived by the affected individuals while causing ongoing difficulties in establishing lifelong, satisfying relationships. Now, that's science. That's not some commentary I read. That is a scientific study of the effects on your brain. And they would go on to say the same thing happens in pornography, that as you look at images, that what you have to do, because this is the way God wired us, is that in looking at pornography, you have to separate that part of you from the rest of you. You're separating that part of you that's meant to use sex as a connection to another person. You have to separate that, and therefore you diminish your ability to have a normal sexual relationship. Let me give you a perspective of a pastor, um, Tim Keller, uh, in The Meaning of Marriage, which is an amazing book for anyone to read, but I especially want to encourage those who are single to read it, which I know that sounds odd to, to recommend a marriage book, but it is 
profoundly helpful. And I was going to paraphrase what he said, but I just couldn't figure out a way to say it any, I, I couldn't figure out a way to say it. And so I usually don't do this, but I'm going to read this. It's, it's just about six chapters long. No, it's just good. It's, uh, it's three paragraphs, but so it's a little long, but um, you'll, you'll be okay. This is what he says. If sex is a method that God invented to do whole life entrustment, what we've been talking about, and self-giving, it should not surprise us that sex makes us feel deeply connected to the other person, even when used wrongly. Unless you deliberately disable it or through the practice you numb the original impulse, sex makes you feel personally interwoven and joined to another human being as you are literally physically joined. In the midst of sexual passion, you naturally want to say extravagant things like, I will always love you. Even if you're not legally married, you might find yourself quickly feeling marriage-like ties feeling that the other person has obligations to you, but that other person has no legal, social, or moral responsibility to even call you back in the morning. This incongruity leads to jealousy and hurt feelings and obsessiveness of two people who are having sex but not married. It makes breaking up vastly harder than it should be. It leads many people to stay trapped in relationships that are not good because of a feeling of having connected themselves. That's why... Anyway... I'll let him keep talking. Therefore, if you have sex outside marriage, you will have to steal yourself. That's an interesting phrase. You will have to steal yourself against sex power to soften your heart toward another person, making you more trusting. The problem is that eventually sex will lose its covenant-making power for you, even if you one day do get married. Ironically, then, sex outside of marriage eventually works backwards, making you less able to commit and trust another person. Now, for some of you, you just figured out why your marriage is struggling. And for others, if you don't course correct, will struggle in your marriage. Now, it is my privilege to quickly take you to the cross of Christ, to take you to the grace of God that is amazing that when Christ, and and Paul even mentions this in the middle of his text, that he talks about Christ raising from the dead, that the power of Christ to raise Christ from the dead. When Jesus rose from the dead, he demonstrated once and for all, there is no destruction that cannot be repaired. And I want you to know that in the cross, there's not just grace uh, for forgiveness of sins, but there is grace for restoration and renewal. And if you will come to him, he will give you that renewal. So you maybe you're sitting there, you're like, and you're just thinking this whole time, like you're just getting further and further down in your seat or when no one's looking, I'm out of here. I'm not coming back because I'm ashamed of my past or I'm ashamed of my present. I just want you to know there is so much grace at the cross and I hope that there's grace in this church. But you need to know, you need to know the danger that you're in. It's not just because it's the wrong thing to do and it's not moral and da-da-da-da-da, but you're damaging yourself. You're hurting yourself. You're robbing yourself. You see, here's what's interesting. Most people say, if I don't have sex outside of marriage, I'm missing out on something. God is saying profoundly the opposite, which is if you do have sex outside of marriage, you are missing something. 
you're missing what I made sex to be, and you're going to rob it of its power. You're going to rob it of its covenant-making, unifying power in your life because I created it to be sacred. I created it to be in the context of whole life disclosure that's permanent, that's re- that, is, that, is, that is irrespective of performance. God doesn't want you to miss out. Sex is sacred. That was just point one, but it is the longest one. This is the next two. Be quick. Se- secondly, sex is service. The abundant life, the life that we've been called into by Jesus, is characterized not by being served, but serving others. Jesus says, I am the son of man. If anyone could you know, call that out and say, serve me, it would be me, but I'm not doing that. I'm, I'm serving you. The abundant life is one that serves someone else not getting other people to serve you. This applies to your marriage and it applies to your sexual relationship. Let me show you verse, go back to 1 Corinthians um, 7, verse three. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise a wife to her husband. Now here's a verse that may have caused some of you to squirm or want to leave. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. In marriage, Paul says that your body literally belongs to the other person. Um, Husbands, if your wife says she doesn't want to have sex yet, if she wants to cuddle, her body isn't ready yet, and you're like, my body is ready, let's just have sex, and then we can watch SportsCenter, or like, better yet, we can like have sex and watch SportsCenter at the same time. You, just for example, for you, I don't have cable, so it's not me. So for you, (laughs) husbands, you don't have authority over your own body. She does. If she wants to cuddle, that's her body to cuddle with, not yours. Husbands, what would it look like for you to submit your bodily desires to your wife, to lay them down, to serve her, to wash her feet sexually. Wives, likewise, what does it mean for you to submit to your husband sexually? Because the Bible is telling us that we are to consider our bodies to be under the authority of our spouse's sexual desires. Now, I need to untangle a few things here because what, what, because the world is broken, because of the pain and, and uh, the, the misuse and our disordered desires and all the things that have gone wrong sexually in our culture, and, and you very well could be a victim of abuse. Let me just say what this is not saying, just as clearly. This is not a license for abuse, because you could read it that way. In fact, if you are in an abusive relationship, call an elder, call the police, if you're not sure you're in an abusive relationship, still call an elder, call someone you trust. Um, if you're in an abusive relationship, you're not the one being hurt. You're not just the one being hurt, but actually if you understand that what sin is, uh, they're being hurt too, so you bringing that to light is not gonna hurt them. It's only going to help them. You need to bring that into light for you and for them. But let me just tell you what the Bible is saying because it's very easy to twist this verse. The Bible is not simply saying that abuse is a sin. It would call a fail. It would call, 
It would say that my failure to lay down my life for my wife is a sin. My failure, it would be a sin for me to do anything self-centered in my relationship with my wife. If I do anything but less than give all of who I am to her to serve her needs, to subordinate my own needs to her needs, if I do anything less than that, that is sin. That is, that is so far away from abuse, it's not even funny. So what this verse is not, this verse, you never quote this verse to your spouse, ever. You never say, I have authority over your body. If you do that, you miss the point of this verse and the rest of the Bible by a mile. This is a verse that you quote to yourself, not to get what you want, but to, for your wife to get what they, she wants, or if you're, uh, to your husband, for your husband to get what he wants. We don't, we don't quote this to our spouses. We quote it to ourselves. Even, even if like your, 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 your needs aren't getting met, even, even if they've had a headache for seven and a half years, like you may need counseling, you may need help, but you're never, ever demanding, ever, ever. In fact, it's the very opposite. You subordinate your needs to the needs of your spouse. Now, here's the cool thing. If you got two people doing that, that is an awesome marriage. It's a loving marriage. It's a satisfying marriage. Marriage is not to be defined by passive aggressive behavior, manipulation, aggression, but love, service, and meeting each other's needs. And, that, and sex is a gift. It's not a reward for good behavior. It's a gift. We are to learn what it looks like to carry a servant-like attitude in everything that we, a servant-like attitude should permeate everything that we do as followers of Jesus because that's who he was. Our Lord and Savior said, it is more blessed to give than receive. And that includes in the bedroom. Verse five, he says, don't deprive each other except for a limited, number one, limited and an agreed upon time so that you could pray. So this is what Paul's saying. In a healthy, God-glorifying, gospel-centered marriage, there's going to be lots of prayer and lots of sex that in your marriage, you should, you should have sex often. Now, how often is often? Well, that's for you to decide, but here's what, here's what you're... So whatever it is, you should be able to say that it's often. And that's going to be different for different people, but that's what... We're verse by verse kind of, you know, this is just preaching the Bible here. Um, because of God wants... See, God's not trying to take this away from us, but he's trying to help us understand what it is. See, what, what ends up happening is we get it all backwards in our head. We think it's for ourselves. It's self-serving, it's, and it just all gets twisted, and it gets disordered, and we mess it all up. So, so one, that it's sex is sacred. It's also sex is service. And finally, Paul says that sex is symbolic. It's a signpost that points to something better. It points to Christ and the church Let's hear from Tim Keller again. He says this, the ecstasy and joy of sex was invented by God to give us a foretaste of the intimacy and closeness we will experience when we finally see God face to face and enter into full union with him and into union with everyone else who loves him. 
In other words, sex is just meant to partially show us what we're really after. Uh, This guy, Josh McDaniel, said this, sex is not the answer. It's the question. See, most of us think that sex is the answer. Sex is the answer to the question, how can I be happy? Sex is not the answer. Sex is the question. Sex points to something else. This old-timer, C.K. Chesterton, said this, every man that knocks on the door of a brothel is seeking God. C.S. Lewis did a series of radio talks in the 1940s on sexuality. And he said, imagine if you went to this university and on the university you went to this, the, the, the male dorm and you went into this room and this guy had all these posters of food, hamburgers, bacon, ice cream sundaes. And then they go off to the club low lights, bumping and grinding music, every guy waiting for the curtain to be pulled up. And as it goes, pulls up, pulls up, pulls chili cheese fries. (laughs) And they're like stuffing dollars in it. You know, they're just like, you would think to yourselves, I mean, they're just like drooling. And I mean, you would think to themselves, man, these guys must be really hungry. Until you realize that actually they have more than enough food. They have a glutton of food. It would lead you to believe that they have a disordered relationship with food. We have a disordered relationship with sex. There's something deeper going on. The gospel says that sexual union is a dim reflection of what it means to fall in the arms of the Lord on that final day. You see, we're, there's something in us that... that that wants satisfaction and we're looking to, to sex to be the answer when really it's a question. It's pointing us to a greater experience. Paul later says in this later letter that no eye has ever seen, no ears ever conceived of what God has in store for us. Paul is saying that until you see the love that God has offered, that the ultimate love, you'll, you'll, you'll never see sex and marriage in its true light. That it's just, it's just a signpost. Like, like if you were going, to the, going out west down I-70 to the Grand Canyon and like you saw, you, you, got, you saw a sign that says 100 miles to the Grand Canyon, you wouldn't like camp out and be like, we're here. We, we made it. You're at the sign. The, the Grand Canyon's over there. You, the, the, there's something grander. There's something better. There's something more ultimate. Sex is like that sign that points us to the Grand Canyon, that points us to something better, that points us to something ultimate. You know what this means, especially for those who are single? It means that you don't miss out on anything if you stay single the rest of your life. You don't miss out on ultimate things if you stay single and sexually pure the rest of your life because you have what is ultimate. You have what is ultimate. You see, this is what Jesus was getting at when he encountered the, the woman at the well. Remember that in John 4? He goes to this, he sees a Samaritan woman, this broken woman. And he says, if you, if you knew that I had living water, you would ask me for it and I would give it to you and you would never be thirsty. And then he starts talking to her about her sex life. I mean, it's nuts. It's just, <laughs> I've never had a conversation like that Hey, let's talk about all your husbands. Well, wait a minute. What he's saying there is like, you have been searching for me through your, 
through these multiple, you've been searching for me this whole time. And if you just asked me, I would give you it. I would give you the, I would give you the thing that you're searching for in this that's well beyond and way above what you're trying to get in this. Sex is not the answer. It's the question. It's pointing to something bigger. It's symbolic of something better. God's not after to destroy your fun, but he's keeping you from destroying your life, from destroying your ability to be intimate with someone else, from destroying your joy. God is a good father. He gives good gifts. He withholds nothing from us. It's the lie of Satan that he's been lying to us ever since the garden. God cannot be trusted. He has something better that he's holding behind his back and he won't give it to you. Don't believe that. Don't believe that. It's just not true. It's not true. So here's what I want to do. The band can go ahead and come up. I want to end with this. I want to invite us to respond. If you are married, it could be that you have some things to repent of before God and maybe your spouse as well. It may mean you've heard this talk that you, you may say like our marriage needs help. Let the leaders in this church, let the elders in this church help you. We can help you ourselves or we can point you to counseling. We, but don't, don't stay where you're at. If you're single, I'm going to ask you to do something even scarier and more painful. Um, and it may even cause you to like duck out of here and not come back. And I know that because this isn't the first time I've preached a message like this. And hey, whatever happened to those single people? Oh yeah, I preached that one message. I want to invite you. I want to invite you. If you're, if you're, if you are currently in, a, uh, if you're currently having sex outside of marriage, I want to invite you to end that today. And it's going to be scary and it's going to be painful because remember what we said, that when you join yourself to someone else sexually, whether you're married to them or not, you will have married-like feelings for them. And it's going to be really hard for you to break something like that off. It's going to be really scary. It's going to be really painful. But here's what I know. God always rewards faith. He always rewards faith. And I've been a pastor for 14 years now. And this is the biggest battleground for faith for most single people. This is the biggest area of unbelief for most single people. And I just want, I just want to encourage you that, you, I, that you'll look back on this day and you'll see this as a defining moment of your life. You'll look back on your day and you'll say, this is the day that God brought blessing into my life. This is a day that God brought healing into my life. This is a day that, that a new level of faith entered my life because of a decision I made on September 9th, 2018. Why don't we stand?